Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. He might have been thinking, well, she looks fine. Nothing happened to her. Nothing is still happening. Um, maybe it's not as bad as we were led to believe. Wait, what, what if it is? But then, either way, I love her. I mean, well, I'll, just, I'll just have the same fate as her, because after all, she is my responsibility, you know. Oh, wait, he's here. Right, now I'll go to see him. Uh, wait a second, something doesn't feel right. Something... Oh, right. Yeah, I'm naked. I can't go out seeing like this. So then Adam says, God, sir, I can't come out right now. I'm naked. Next time. Come later. And God is like, wait, who told you you're naked? Did you eat those poisoned berries I told you not to touch? Then Adam is thinking, well, hold on a second, he's, he's blaming me. It's not my fault, I mean, after all, you know, she did give him to me, it's her fault. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm innocent really, she, you know, she made me do it. What happened to love? A minute ago, he was going to take the same fate as her because he loved her. And now he's literally throwing her under the bus, trying to save his own skin. So maybe those berries were poisonous after all. Because sin. Sin corrupts even love. Then we have a new scenario. Genesis 6-4. There were giants on earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. I've just a quick note. I've, I've heard many times people trying to interpret this as sons of God, some kind of heavenly being coming into, you know, breed with 
men and then they produce giants. But actually the verse says, in those days and also afterwards. So the giants already existed. And the giants also came from the sons of God um, who were going into the daughters of men. Just that. But I digress. What happened is that the main point is the sons of God mixed with the daughters of men. When did God stop talking directly to people? Because we know in the beginning God came and literally told Adam face to face. It was like, who told you you're naked? Right? That was God talking to Adam and Adam could hear him. Well, actually, the Bible tells us what happened, right? There was um, Cain. Cain happened. He, um, well, he killed his brother. And uh, it says in verse 14 that uh, Cain was hidden from the face of God. And then in 16 that uh, he came out of the presence of God. So, you know, well... We'll just read Genesis chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Surely you have, that's what Cain says, right? Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. And then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelled in the land of Nod and east of Eden. This is the first mention of people being separated from God. Where, Adam, uh, where, where Cain is hidden from the face of God. And then he went out from the presence of the Lord. Well, by deduction, then we learn that this happened to Cain... But because it only happened to Cain, that means everybody else was fine. So that didn't change for Adam and Eve and their children later. Or, you know, the ones that stayed with him because obviously they were... Cain had a wife, so that had to come from somewhere. So there were more children. But, um, you know, that happened to Cain. Not to Adam and Eve and their children. So God still talked to them. That means that God still was, you know, communicating and having a, a, a you know, face-to-face -face relationship with those people. Except for Cain. And, um, so... Cain went 
you know, it says the king went out and knew his wife and then he had children. And, and we have these two groups of people that lived separate from each other. It was Cain and his family, and then he built, <clears throat> excuse me, you read on, it, it tells you that Cain built a city and called it Enoch, you know, in the honor of his son. But God's people were a different group. They were, they were separate. In Genesis 4, 25 and 26, um, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son named, and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. As for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Um, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. That is when men started calling on the name of the Lord. What happened here? Right, so Cain had his own family, his own city. Then because, you know, obviously God promised Eve that her seed will crush the devil, will crush the devil's head, um, you know, it was obvious that Cain wasn't it. You know, he was doing ungodly things. So God gave her a continuation of the line of godly people. And so God has had his, um, had his children who are calling on his name. It says that they started calling on his name. Why did they start calling on his name? Well, if you imagine that there's this group of people that were in a good relationship with God, and then there was this group of people who abandoned God, you know, they could still see each other. And when they saw what Cain's life was like, because you can imagine that children, well, you don't have to imagine, we know that children basically repeat what the parents do. It's how children learn, how we all learn. We all learn from our parents. And if, if, that's, if there was a city, an entire city, whose, the, whose parent was Cain, who was a treacherous, murderous person, what do you think his children were like? So God's children, the ones who stayed with him, got to see what it is like to not be without, to not be with God, to be away from the face of God. And so they started calling on his name because they understood that sin is not the way to go, is a terrible way of life. So God has his, had his children, they called on him, God strived with them, because obviously now there is this group of people that is tempting them, 
And um, it says in Genesis 6.3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So if God says he's not going to strive with man forever, that means he used to strive with him before then. So God strived with people to try and keep them in his fold. Because we know today that we're all tempted by the devil, and so were they. And God strived with them. As we know throughout history, God constantly strived with them. Israel would run away, then God would punish them, try to knock some wisdom back into their heads and bring him back. So God strived with his people to keep them as children of God. But then God's children, so the sons of God, took wives of men. Genesis 6, verse 1 and 2. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply, men, on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men, um, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives to themselves, all of whom they chose. So men started multiplying. In other words, people who didn't know God, they multiplied. And then even the sons of God, so that group of people that called on his name, even they were led astray by their temptations. They gave in to temptation. And obviously those wives led them all astray. And now there are no more sons of God. Because it is a state of mind. Being a son of God, being a child of God is a state of mind. And as soon as they went away and joined the daughters of men, and thereby joining men, sinful men, they no longer were the children of God. And so the children of God diminished. And as far as we know, the Bible tells us that Noah was the last child of God, actually. Genesis 6, verse 5 to 8, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and bird of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So out of all the people that lived on earth, Noah was the only one 
that found grace in the eyes of God. This tells us that even though God had an entire group of people, at a point they might have been even half of the, of the earthly population, but out of all those people, only Noah was left who found grace in the eyes of God. By that point, for all we know, it could have been millions of people because they were very fertile, they were healthy. We're talking about the first people that God created. They were perfect. Yes, they were, they, 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 they were, they were dying. They, you know, that, those poisonous berries, they, they, they ruined their body in, in, in a way that they started dying. But compared to us, they were perfect. They didn't have fertility problems and they were told to multiply. So, you know, if you just look at the population of today, you know, if, if there are good conditions, we multiply exponentially. So, yes, there could have been millions of people back in the days of Noah around. And out of all those millions of people, Noah was the only one who found grace in the eyes of God. The last son of God. The only one. There's another interesting thing that it says about Noah. It says that he was perfect. Genesis 6-9 says, This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. So Noah was perfect. I mean, you know. Yes, he was, I'm sure, better behaved than I am. But he was still a son of Adam after sin. How was he perfect? The last part of that verse gives it away. It says, Noah walked with God. And he was considered perfect. Who else walked with God? I know that Jesus walked with God. So God's children walk with him. What happens when you go on a one-on-one -on -one walk with somebody? You get to know that person better. You become close and personal with that person. If you go on a, you know, and, and, and back in the day when they didn't have cars, they used to walk for a long time. So, you know, if you, if you went from here to Exeter and you met somebody on the way or you, or you took off with somebody and you walked all the way, you, you had, a, you had a, a, like a day and a half worth of walking. And if you, you know, if you spend that much time one-on-one -on -one with a person, you, you know, things start coming up. You know, you start saying things and, and you, get, you get to know the other person. So God's people walked with him. And that made Noah perfect. In fact, 
if you walk enough with God, it can make you so perfect as to not be fit to live on earth anymore. We read in Genesis 5, 21 to 24. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. What does it tell us about Enoch? It tells us that God decided that Enoch was so good. He was so heavenly minded. He was so like God that God decided he's not fit to, 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 to live on earth anymore. Back in those days, people lived over 900 years. If you leave, you, it's just part of the genealogy, that verse. If you read the verse above, the verse below, it tells you how long all the people before Enoch and after Enoch lived. They lived for, you know, close to a thousand years. Enoch only lived 365. And then he disappeared. The Bible tells us God took him. Why did God take him? Because he was perfect. Enoch became absolutely perfect. And God couldn't bear him living on earth anymore. So he took him to heaven. Okay, so how do we achieve perfection? Well, the only thing that the Bible tells us about Enoch, who God took, is that he walked with him. Enoch walked with God. And that made him absolutely perfect. The same perfection that Noah had. Probably more because, well, I don't know. Maybe Noah had a, a different purpose. Either way, they're both perfect. And the only, the, the only thing that the Bible tells us about them is that they walked with God. The only thing. It doesn't say they kept the commandments or, you know, did any pen, penance of any kind or, you know, helped anyone. Or All we know is they walked with God. We also know that Jesus walked with God. Well, you know, Jesus, he's God. But. So if, if walking with someone gets, to, gets you to know that person, the purpose of you walking with someone would be to know them better. So that means that perfection is the knowledge of God. If you know God, you're perfect. Because God can make us perfect through the sacrifice he had to take so that we could live with him. So that we have this opportunity to know him. And if we get to know him, he will make us perfect. So then, you know, God continues his, his lineage. Um, the flood happened and, you know, 
the only son of God was saved and he had children and then those children left God. So God chose another person, you know, Abraham, you know, and then his lineage was going to be, I mean, obviously Abraham came from a direct line from Noah. So, you know, God always had his people. Oh, mind you, always the minority. God's people were never the majority. Through the, actually, no, I, I, I take that back. God's people were the majority before sin. And probably like as like up to the first murder or something. But then after that, they're always the minority. There are only a handful of them. Out of everyone, Abraham was chosen. Yeah, I mean, there was another priest that he had to pay tithe to. So, you know, God has his people. But they were never the majority. They're always the minority. And then Israel became, became his, his child, right? Israel was, a, was again the child of God. And then they went through, you know, ups and downs. And, but God kept his lineage to where he brought Jesus Christ into the world through that lineage of the children of God, the sons of God. You know, through Noah, you know, through Abraham, through Israel, then Christ came. And those were the people that God saved. And everyone else, I mean, the sons of men, God first killed with a flood. And then when Israel was chosen to be God's child... God actually, you know, removed other people in the path of Israel. So God takes care of his children. But wait a minute. What about me? I don't come from that lineage. My ancestors were Tracians. They used to sacrifice people. Actually, their culture was very similar to that of Vikings. Completely ungodly people. What happens to me? I'm not part of that lineage. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, verse 4 and 4 to 6. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, but that we might receive, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent, sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir, heir of God through Christ. And also, let's read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 6, and then 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And at verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So although we are not of the fold of Israel, he adopted us to give us the inheritance that was of Israel, of his children. He adopted us. He gave us, because, I mean, inheritance, heirs. That is something reserved exclusively for the next generation exclusively for, for a child. If you're not part of the family, you don't get an inheritance. You're not an heir if you're not part of the family. But that God adopted us into his family so that we can be heirs of salvation, which is the heritage of his children, in Christ. And how does he do that? We receive sonship through the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, who you did not receive, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we, may, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If needed, we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. Through the adoption of the Spirit, we may call God our father. I come from a lineage where the father of my forefathers was the devil. But I get to call God my father because he adopted me through the spirit into his family. And, I mean, we've seen it many times. You know. Adoptions don't always go great. Especially in the past. Um, you know, adoption was probably more of a burden than it is today. 
Usually adopted kids weren't treated as well as natural kids. If you will, they were loved less. But how much does God love us? We are adopted children of God. We don't come from the same fold as Israel. We are adopted. But how much does God actually love us? So imagine a child who is absolutely evil, constantly rejects help, always gets into trouble by committing serious crimes, is a murderous, rapist criminal, hates, abuses, physically assaults, terrorizes, disrespects his, her parent, and on top of it all, is also adopted. Now imagine that that child, through recklessness, of his, her own recklessness, faces death unless a heart transplant is performed. Now, that child, would you give your heart for that child to live, to continue their life, as I just described that child's life. Imagine that child I just described. Now that child is dying in need of a heart. Would you give up your own heart to save that child so that they can continue their life? Do you think the parents should give up their heart, should give up their life for that child to continue theirs? But God did just that. Exactly that. He died for us not before we were sanctified. Not before we got better. Not before we became perfect in his eyes. You know, to, to, to win his affection. He loved us and died for us, like properly died. What we die now is, is not proper death because it's, it's reversible, you know. God will raise everyone again. What Jesus, the way Jesus died was the proper death, what we call the second death. So God died for us before he had any assurance that we would turn and love him back. Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man, will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrate his love, his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't correct us first. He first died for us. Without even any hope, maybe hope, but no assurance 
that we will reciprocate that love that he just demonstrated in the ultimate act. God loves us so much that even though we are miserable creatures in sin, he died for us anyway without even knowing that, you know, that will for sure bring us back into his fold because we still have the choice. Now, how would you feel? I've seen that in, I've watched too many shows and I've seen that in a few, that, that, that motive being portrayed. Imagine you go up to someone and you tell that person all about how You've been in love with that person for a long time and how, how, how deeply you're in love and how much you care for that person, and how much that person means to you. All get emotional and, you know, mushy. And then you tell her or him all those, you know, your entire love confession, right? And then that person turns around and says, um, Ah, thank you. Thank you very much. That's so nice of you. How would you feel? Would you be happy? They thanked you for your confession of love. You know, some, some may say that's a little wrong. <laughs> You just don't say anything. <laughs> but that is kind of what we're doing to God. He, he died for us. And we go thanking him. How, how do you thank someone for dying? I mean, you know, you, you thank for a piece of bread, you thank for, you know, help for... How do you thank someone for literally dying? You say, thank you. It's nice of you. So after God took you in from the streets of misery and from the queue of the death row, and took your place in the lineup and did nothing but love you unconditionally and undeserving on your part while you lived your life the way you want because nobody's going to tell you how you're going to live. Disrespecting him and throwing his kindness and goodwill back into his face with every sin and every time you're ashamed of him in public or in front of your friends, yet still he loves you continually then ultimately, even though he is perfect and your life is wretched, he died. An ultimate expression of love for no other purpose but just so you may go on living. 
Are you grateful? Or do you love him? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever. Amen.